singing this morning. If I could just sing. If I could just sing. Open with me in your Bibles today to the first chapter of Job. Today's message will be number 14 in the series of messages on the subject of the mystery of human suffering. And the title of the message today is going to be simply Satan's view of human faithfulness or his method of destroying the work of God. Follow with me in the reading of the text this morning, because I'll not have time to come back and read the verses as we refer to them in the context of the message. Beginning in verse 6 of the first chapter of Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came also among them. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? It's none like him in the earth, a perfect man, an upright man, one that fears God and cheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him, about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thy power, only upon himself put forth not thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. There was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the asses feeding beside them. The Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants, consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans have made out three bands and fell upon the camels, have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they're dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, or his robe, shaved his head, fell upon the ground and worshipped, said, Naked, Came I out of my mother's womb, naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, pay all that a man hath would he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he's in thy hand, but save his life. So went forth, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with it. He sat down among the ashes. And then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. May God bless the reading of the Word this morning, and let us worship together now as the message unfolds. In the previous 13 messages on the mystery of human suffering, we've traced the origin of human suffering from the curse placed upon man due to his sin in the Garden of Eden, And we have followed the suffering of humanity through the centuries of time unto the end of human existence in this present evil world, which will cease at the coming of the Lord. We've seen how our suffering as believers are for the purposes of identifying us with the sufferings of our Savior, and at the same time to develop in us a dependable moral character of steadfastness for which God will graciously reward us with varying degrees of service and joy in administrating the affairs of the new heaven and the new earth. And now, after completing our journey through time into understanding the role of suffering in the redemptive plan of God, I wish to add today's message as an addendum to the series. And our goal in today's message will be to explain how Satan attempts to use suffering as an instrument to sift and destroy the creative and redemptive work of God in the lives of God's faithful servants. That is our task today. There is one book in the Bible that opens up to us the invisible world of reality and enables us to look into Satan's strategy for destroying man and, if he can do so, to dishonor and overthrow the very being of God himself and dethrone God. And that book is the book of Job. There's a problem stated At the outset, the suffering of a good and faithful person has always presented a big problem for those who believe in a just and a holy God. 
How can a just God allow a righteous and a faithful servant to be exposed to tragedies and afflictions of all kinds? And the book of Job addresses this question and gives us an unexpected and surprising answer. The answer is not found in the debate between Job and his friends, which is recorded in chapters 3, verse 1, through chapters 34 and verse 24. In this debate, his friends hold to what is known as retribution theology, which operates on the premise that God blesses a just and a faithful person with wealth, health, and prosperity, and that he punishes unfaithful people who engage in sinful thoughts and actions. The modern health and wealth gospel movement did not begin in modern times. It was even in the olden days of Job. His friends charged Job with having engaged in some secret, hideous act of sin and that his tragedies and his sicknesses are due to God punishing him for his refusal to confess and repent of his sin. In return or response, Job adamantly refuses to confess to some unknown particular sin, although he would not deny that he was a sinner by nature. The debate ends with each participant maintaining his own original position with neither Job nor his friends succeeding in persuading each other to yield. As the book unfolds, there are several themes which are enlarged upon. And this has led to disagreement among the commentators as to what the main theme of the book consists. I believe that among all the themes, there are two major themes which are addressed along with several minor ones. The first major theme is found in the prologue prologue, or the introduction of the book consisting of chapters 1 and 2. And it involves the question, listen, What is the true motivation for worshiping and serving God? Then the second major theme is given in the epilogue, or the closing of the book, located in chapter 42 and verses 1 through 17. And that deals with the end purpose which God has in exposing His servants to trials and afflictions. The book opens with the presentation of the main character, whose name is Job. He lived in a walled city, defense city, chapter 29, verses 7 and 8. He lived in the land of Uz, located in northern Arabia, next to Midian, where Moses lived for 40 years, Exodus 2.15, Jeremiah 25.20. Job was a God-fearing man. He was honest. He was upright. And he practiced a lifestyle of holiness unto the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
He was a family man who was faithful to his wife. She was faithful to him. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 42 and verse 13. Job was blessed with ten children, seven sons and three daughters. Chapter 1, verse 2. Job was a spiritual man as the head of his household. He served as a priest to offer up sacrifices on behalf of his family. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Job was a man of great wealth, being the richest man in the whole region of the East. Chapter 1 and verse 3. He was a man of respectability and honor, having served in the government of his city. Chapter 29 and verses 7 and 8. The activity at the beginning of the book takes place in heaven with the convening of an angelic convention. Chapter 1 and verse 6. It appears to be called together by God and is one of the many assemblies scheduled by God throughout time or history. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Compare Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 7, and Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 17. In other words, this is not just a one-time event. The angels have to appear before God on a regular scheduled interval whenever God calls for the convention to assemble. The angels are called the sons of God. And these invisible spiritual beings were created by God sometime during the creative week of Genesis 1 and 2, as confirmed in the 38th chapter of Job, verses 4 through 7. The assembly is composed of both holy and unholy angels the latter group being known as demons. They are all there to report to their Creator the various ministries and activities in which they have been engaging. In doing so, they are having to acknowledge the supremacy of God and His authority over them. Satan was there and was the spokesman for his supporters. Chapter 1, verse 6. Compare also Revelation 12 and verses 3 and 4. Satan is not a name, it's a title. And it means adversary. In either a judicial or a personal sense. Satan is the adversary of humanity and has been accusing the righteous throughout the Old Testament era era prior to the enthronement of Christ. We lose sight of ever so often that throughout the Old Testament age, God was taking His saints into His heaven when they died. But there was no mediator to represent them there as sinners. 
Christ having not yet become incarnate, and there is no atonement that has been made for their sin. That will present a problem. And Satan jumps on that. Satan's charge was an attack upon the justice of God for allowing what appeared to be unholy sinners into God's holy presence. How can you do this and be just? And God could only reply that He would one day fulfill His promise and make them righteous. But that day would be a future day. In the meantime, Satan denies that God has the ability to achieve this purpose. And his confidence to prevent this redemptive purpose from occurring was based on his success that he had experienced in overthrowing fallen Adam in Eden. Genesis 3, 6 through 12, and verses 17 through 19. That is, Satan reasons, if I can destroy the creative work of God, I can also prevent the redemptive or the recreative work of God from happening. You see now a little bit of the thrust of the invisible war that's been going on through the centuries of time since God created the heavens and the earth, and the fall of man. Now, in a courtroom setting, the adversary usually stood to the right of the accused. This is described when Satan accused Joshua, the high priest, as recorded in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. I wish time would allow us to go there and read the six verses, because they are pregnant with wisdom and understanding. I'll quote the first verse only. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, there's where the accuser is at. He's at the right hand of the person to whom he's accusing. And again, oh, I wish I could get off on that, Dana, but there's somebody else at the right hand now. Huh? You know who that is. But he wasn't there in the Old Testament era. There is a mediator now. And Satan has been cast out of the heavens, cannot make that accusation and those charges anymore against God's people who are there. God opens the courtroom session by calling upon Satan to state his recent movements and his activities. Chapter 1, verse 7. Satan replies that he is the prince of this world, John 12, 31, and that he's been carrying out his ministry in the affairs involving the physical earth and its inhabitants, namely mankind. I've been walking to and fro where? In the earth. Peter may well have used this passage to warn his readers about Satan. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, 
goes about as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may, what? Devour. He's not only an adversary, he is a devourer, a destroyer. His ministry is further described by the names given to him in Revelation 9 and verse 11, where we read there, they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. Two names. Both of these names in the Hebrew and the Greek mean destroyer. It is, now listen, the ministry of Satan. This is what he's about. It is his ministry, his driving force to seek out and destroy the work of God. Both in creation and in recreation or redemption. That's what drives this being is to destroy the work of the Creator. In verses 8 through 11 of the first chapter, a debate ensues between God, the spokesman for good, and Satan, the spokesman for evil. The subject of the debate is the faithfulness of God's servant, Job. God debates from the affirmative position. How many of you have ever had debating in school? Any? Guess I'm the only one. Two? Anybody? Bob? You know you have an affirmative and a negative. The affirmative always takes the position that he has to prove the issue. All the negative has to do is just raise reasonable doubt to win the debate. It's a lot easier to debate negative than it is affirmative. But the affirmative always takes the opening session. God debates the issue of Job from the affirmative position that Job is a truly righteous and faithful person. Satan debates from the negative position that Job's a pretender and a hypocrite. The affirmative position begins the debate with God affirming the outstanding character of his servant Job. Now, here's God's testimony. There's none like Job in all of humanity, all the earth. His character is flawless. He reverences God. He opposes evil. This is God's way, Brother Asa, of saying to Satan, out of all of my human creatures, Job is the best servant I've got. Remember, we're in an angelic scene here. All the inhabitants in the invisible world of the angels are looking in on this debate. Satan then rises to make his reply, his rebuttal. And notice that he cannot contradict the facts of God's description of Job. And he concedes the point. Job was a faithful man. Satan acknowledges that. But... Satan goes deeper than what exists on the outward appearance and raises the issue of Job's motivation. 
for being upright and faithful to God. Now, as I've mentioned, in a debating procedure, the affirmative must prove its position beyond reasonable doubt in order to win. All the negative must do is to raise a reasonable doubt as to the truthfulness of the affirmative position. And Satan raises a suspicion that Job's blamelessness has been motivated by the many riches that God has given him and by the fact that God has shielded him from all kinds of troubles and tragedies. Verses 9 and 10. And that if God were to take away all these things, then Job would apostatize from his service to God and curse his Creator to his very face. Now remember, if one of the redeemed apostatizes, it means that Satan has destroyed the work of God and proven himself more wise and more subtle and more powerful than God. And God must step off of the throne in humility. This is what's going on, folks, in the realm of the invisible world that you and I can't see into, but we're given insight here in this book. Now let us pause here for a moment and let the weight of the seriousness of this satanic accusation to sink in. Satan's attack on the integrity of Job was at the same time an attack upon the honor and the glory of God. In the presence of the entire population of heaven, consisting of countless millions of angels, God has declared that Job was his special man on earth. In order to discredit God, Satan, in the presence of the same audience, has asserted that the godliness of Job is not genuine. Job had been faithful to God not because he loved and glorified God, but because God had given him great riches and protection. Satan's reply can be rephrased in this manner. Now, God, do I understand you right? Is Job for sure the best servant that you have? I want your best. God says, yes, Job's my best. Satan says, I believe he's a phony. And that he's never had his faithfulness tested. Do you see what's going on? If Job's faithfulness was not genuine and he was the best that God had on earth, then who else could God point to in order to show that anyone of Adam's race truly loved and honored him? you get the weight of this? 
This is a serious time in the universe of God. Satan has insinuated that God bribed people into faithfulness to Him. That He bought their allegiance with riches. And that people merely worshipped Him merely for the material goods they obtained from Him, not because He alone is worthy of praise and glory. Satan is wanting to prove that God's work of redemption in reclaiming and restoring Adam's race is not permanent. That saving faith can be destroyed and that those sons whom God has saved could once again become the property of the devil. Get the weight of this scene. Satan is challenging the very honor of God's being himself. The angelic audience must have been stunned as a great and fearful silence settles over the scene in heaven. They glance at one another. They look at Satan. They look at the throne of God. They look back each other. What will the Creator do? His glory, an entire redemptive program is on the line. a situation in which the only solution is to submit Job to a test. Let's see if he's genuine or not. You say he is, I say he's not. Let's put him to a test. Everything which Job treasures in his earthly life must be taken away so that all of the angelic realm can observe his behavior. Now, lest that you get so enthralled with the story here that this is a one-time thing, I want to introduce to you the concept this is an ongoing thing and your faithfulness is also discussed from time to time in the heavenlies. It may be discussed being discussed at this very moment. While God and Satan are adversaries, it is remarkable that they both agree on one essential point. That being that any righteousness and faithfulness to God 
which is based upon the blessings which God bestows is not a genuine faithfulness. They agree on that. One must serve God not for the blessings which He bestows, but for the very glory of His being. Brother Jim, I believe if this were understood, the whole church growth movement, with its games and its gimmicks which bribe people into the service of God for what they can get in return from God, would melt like a snowball in July. The end does not justify the means. The motive for doing something must first be pure before the act can be accepted as genuine. You can come to church this morning and do an act, but have a wrong motive, and it stinks in the nostrils of God. What's your motive for going to church today? Because your mom and dad made you? You're a stench in the nostrils of God this morning. It'd be better you walk out of the building right now. Well, you're going to be judged not on your outward appearance, but on the intent of the heart. Churches are being filled today with people being motivated for the better life. Selfish gain. How sad it is that the modern church has overlooked this principle, which both God and the devil agree upon. I urge my hearers to reflect much upon what you've just heard and make your own application, as time will not enlarge, enable me to enlarge upon this. In verse 12, God accepts the challenge delivers Job into the hand or power of Satan to destroy what he will, except he cannot touch Job's bodily health. God believes that Job will bless his name. And Satan believes that Job will curse God to his face. Now the scene shifts from the heavenly assembly and the courtroom there to the earthly battleground. That Job wakes up to see the sun rise on another day. He has no idea whatsoever what's heading toward him. And what is showing up on the heavenly radar screen. Those who have been in war understand that war is hell. Truly, all hell is about to break loose upon Job. The prince of darkness with all his troops are marching toward Job. And Job doesn't know anything about it. Satan's power to control angels, men, animals, and the weather are all about to be displayed here. 
Chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, Satan will attack Job's faith by removing, quote, all that he has. Verse 11, end of quote. And by means of four rapid-fire disasters, Satan destroys Job's livestock, his servants, and his ten children, and only four messengers survive. I can yet hear the words of Oral Roberts, something good is going to happen to you today. Well, that wasn't Job's case. And it was not going to be due to Job's lack of faith. There was something going on in the unseen world, the invisible war. Satan controlled the hearts of robbers and murderers. He controlled the elements in the lightning firestorm and the tornadic winds to achieve his destruction. He is truly the destroyer. Inferring from the discussion that we have just looked at in heaven, we are entitled to think that at this moment, the entire population of heaven is watching to see what will be the reaction of God's best man. Will Job remain faithful? Or will he curse God? God's honor is at stake. Will Job prove that God can indeed have a people upon the earth who will still worship Him after He strips them of all their wealth and earthly comforts? If he fails, if Job fails, then Satan has dethroned God by revealing to the moral universe that God is not the glorious being He's claimed to be. If He can get the best one, He doesn't need all the rest. As one messenger after another come to inform Job of the disasters, Job realizes that all that he's owned as well as his ten precious children, are gone. He must have stood in silence, dazed and bewildered. He manifested the visible expressions of inward human grief by tearing his robe and shaving his head. Verse 20. Then, contrary to Satan's expectations, Job falls to the ground with his face in the earth and worships God. Verse 20. And instead of cursing God, he responds with a simple statement about the common destiny of all human beings. Verse 21, first chapter. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked I shall return thither. 
The Lord gave. What's the rest? The Lord taken away. I tell you, that's, that's moving to me. With these words, Job, in effect, said, I didn't bring these things with me when I came into the world. <laughs> they were given to me by God. And being His, He has the right to take them away at any time He so pleases. My praise and my service to my God does not depend upon my possession of material goods and earthly comforts. I will worship God because of who He is, since He alone is God and worthy of my praise. And then Job uttered those magic words, Blessed, (laughs) blessed, Be the name of the Lord. You remember what God said He would do? He'll bless me. What did Satan say He'd do? He'll curse you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is it too much to imagine that at this precise moment there was an explosion that rocked the heavens as all the holy angels joined their voices together with a holy roar like the sound of many waters giving approval to Job and began singing hymns of praise unto their Creator. As they see Job's words and his deeds come forth, they trace the origin of those words and deeds back to the throne of God who has enabled Job to remain faithful. Let your good deeds be done before men. Or the, I'm, not, I'm missing up my quote. That they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify the Father which is in heaven. Listen, my friends. If the angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents, What must have occurred when God was vindicated and Satan was humiliated? I tell you, it was more than a typical bunch of Baptists sitting on their pews. You can't even get a grunt out of them. Hmm? Oh, we've got to be quiet. We're in the Lord's chamber. We're in the Lord's house. Hooray. I can visualize, Brother Asa, those holy angels harmonizing Dana in a heavenly doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. (laughs) Praise Him all ye creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Job is genuine. And God's work remains true and permanent. Well, what about the song? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the glories of my God and King. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job blessed God here on earth, and it affected the realm of the heavens. Praise God. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those that are His. And let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19. Way to go, Job! You did it! You're a worker of God. You're God's man. Makes chills go up and down my spine. I like to go to ball games. And when it comes that time when the home team starts to rally in one of those big major league stadiums and that organist starts playing, that rally charge, it sends chills up and down my spine. Charge! Job, you did it! Now listen, you think I'm perhaps exaggerating this. The angels desire to look into these things I'm talking about today. They go to church. And there's both holy angels and unholy angels here today observing your faithfulness. You know that? That's exactly right. When the Word is preached in the parable of the sower, Satan is there to snatch it out. He's there. And angels are there to see what kind of people attend this church. Why do they go there? How do they behave themselves? Are they really interested in the things of God or this there to make a show? Maybe get God to go and say a little prayer, listen to a sermon. Maybe God will do something good for them this week. That's all being sifted out as Peter was sifted by Satan. Your faithfulness is being sifted, my hearers. Well, the battle is over. Smoke is cleared. The assembly of angels is dismissed and Job is left to pick up the pieces. He has no idea what's been occurring in the heavenlies and God never does inform him about it. He and his wife mourn over their children. Try to begin putting their lives back together. They console each other with the fact, well, we've still got our health. And we've still got each other, the comforts of our marriage. But there's something else about to happen. There's a second session assembled in heaven. And despite his humiliating defeat, Satan does not give up. He knows he's been given a short amount of time to pursue his work of seeking to dethrone God and destroy the work of God. As we've now seen, his primary method in doing so is inflicting suffering upon God's people. That's how he'll get to you. Chapters two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God calls the convention together and once again parades his servant Job before Satan and the host of heaven. 
And this time God takes special notice of the fact that Job has maintained his loyalty to God, even though Satan has been permitted to afflict him without any just cause in doing so. Again, Satan does not deny the facts of the case, but he presses the issue even further. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Satan reveals his knowledge of human nature to be such that a man's most prized possession is his health. Hmm? We say it all the time. Well, uh, I lost my job, but I still got my health. Satan knows that. He knows how what you think about your health. Nothing will cause a person to lose hope and desire to live than to be exposed to chronic pain. And Satan asked permission to test Job's faithfulness in this area. Satan realizes that he can do nothing to Job without God allowing it. All things are under control of the hand of God. He's in your hand. Job, or rather Satan acknowledges that. But when God allows Satan to exercise his powers, God ascribes the instrumental cause of the evil afflictions to belong to the, listen, the hand of Satan. Now he's in your hands. Satan's hands or power are in the control of God's hands and power. Verse 6. God permits Satan to destroy Job's health, but prevents him from taking his life in death. Satan now afflicts the body of Job from his head to his feet. There is no part of Job's body that is without pain. Unless you find that Job perhaps was not the best testimony in the chapter's uh, flowing there with his conversation with his friend. You just remember what it's like when you get sick. And you don't want anybody to bother you. We say things and do things a lot of times when we're in pain that we wouldn't do otherwise. And Job's having to defend himself from accusations from his friends when he is in absolute terror and torment and pain. He ends up like a leper outside the city in the garbage dump where they burned the garbage and the ashes. Verses 7 and 8. Job's faithful wife is amazed that he can still remain faithful to God and not wanting to see him suffer anymore. As much as she loved him, she advised him to do what? Curse God. Remember that echo from heaven? Reasoning that God would then kill him, put him out of his misery. She did not know at the time that she was exactly doing exactly what Satan wanted to see happen. And thus she becomes Satan's accomplice without being aware of it in verse 9. I would make a note in passing here. We are doing the work of the devil any time we discourage someone from faithfully following God. Okay? Just in passing. Job rebukes his wife 
He once again expresses his loyalty to God by blessing the name of God instead of cursing Him. Verse 10. Once again, the angels roar their approval. Satan is defeated and God is glorified. And Satan has to leave the scene in humiliation and defeat once again. But he'll be back. He'll be back. He tempted Christ in the wilderness. And then he says he left him. But he'll be back. He'll be back. Put that down. In the end now here, God proves that saving faith cannot be destroyed. No matter how much trouble a saint may suffer. Now that's consoling. I get it? The Lord knows those who are His. Or how undeserved and incomprehensible the suffering seems to be. What are God's servants to do when there are no rational or even theological explanations for pain and tragedies? What are we to do? Trust God! Trust God. Trust God. The second main theme is revealed in the book, is found in the epilogue, as recorded in chapter 42. There it explains the end purpose which God has in exposing His servants to trials and afflictions. And God comes and now reveals His character to be one who loves to show compassion and mercy. He restores Job double <laughs> with all that he formerly possessed. He has proved, now listen to me, that Job persevered because he, God, had preserved him. Get it? Someone asked, wait a minute, you mentioned God doubling Job with everything he had prior to taking it away. But doesn't the text there in the 42nd chapter says that he gives Job seven sons and three daughters? But well, why didn't he give him 14 sons and six daughters? You ask those kind of questions, don't you, Asa? Why didn't he double Job's family? I can't give that answer, but I'm going to speculate in one that really gives me joy, Brother Bob. Job had 14 sons and six daughters. Half of them were here on earth, and the other half were in heaven. So he had doubled the amount of children. Isn't it consoling as a parent that if you lose a child, that child is in the presence of God? That you can say with David, I can't bring him back, but I can what? I can go to him. you still got a child. We use words, Brother Clint, like, I I'm sorry, Brother Jim, that you lost your mother. Mom died a couple of months ago. 
Uh, now, I don't want to be crude and because that's, that's what I say too. But listen, I didn't lose my mother. My mother's still around. She's just in another dimension. And one day I'm going to see her again along with my dad. What a consolation. I have a father and mother that are in glory. God's a compassionate. God will more than compensate what He calls upon us to lose in this life. He'll not be outgiven. James describes in James 5 and verse 11 the end purpose of God, what it was in consenting to the affliction of Job. Now listen to it. I'm quoting from the New King James Version, James 5, 11. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. <laughs> you see what God's end design was in permitting Job to be afflicted? To give him the opportunity to show how compassionate and merciful he would be in the outcome of it all. Tell you, when we get to glory one of these days, those of us that know the Lord, it will be worth it all, will it not, when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Him. Job 42.5, we have Job's account of what he says he had gained from all of this experience. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth. What does that mean? May I suggest this, that prior to his sufferings, Job's knowledge of God, while genuine, was highly theoretical. He had learned about God from his parents, teachers, and others, just like you learn about God from your teachers and others. You learn about the gospel. Job had believed in God and faithfully served Him. But listen as I conclude. It was in His sufferings that God became visible and real. And it is only in our sufferings that we are enabled to experience the real presence of God in our lives. Can you say amen to that? When has God come and manifested His closest presence to you? Was it not when everything came to end? The afflictions of Job enable God to demonstrate the reality of His being to Job. It's real, it's real. God is real. He's more than an abstract concept, more than a theological proposition. He is a real, living person. And it will not be that you will know that until you are brought into a real experience of human suffering. Then God will become real to you. 
And when God becomes real to you, you'll not let go of Him. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He's real. There are multitudes of lessons and applications which we can glean from Job, which time will not permit to discuss. I close with just one brief sentence here. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. Job never had it explained to him of the cosmological audience. But you've had it explained to you today. And I close with this sobering thought. There may be now an angelic convention being convened in heaven to discuss your faithfulness and my faithfulness even as we speak. I'm glad I've got a Savior.